Welcome to the Presentation Boss Podcast. I'm Kate Norris. I'm Thomas Craft. And we're here to help you plan, design, and deliver your best presentation. It's the Big 7-0, episode 70 of the Presentation Boss Podcast. And today we're smashing out a speech breakdown. So for the new players amongst you, that is where we play a talk from the internet. Today it's another TED Talk. And we pause it at any noteworthy moments where we think that the presenter is doing something particularly well that maybe you would like to emulate or doing something that we feel doesn't work and the reasons why. One of the ways to become a better presenter is by looking at other presenters and trying to emulate things that they do and also looking at things that you might want to avoid because you don't like them personally. I always say life is too short to make all the mistakes yourself, so watch other people (laughs) and learn from those. All right, today we are looking at one that sounds really cool. Again, I have not watched it. Thomas has, because that (laughs) seems to be how we do these things. And I swear I didn't pick it just because of the title. This one came off the TED Talks Daily podcast, and I thought, that is a good talk. Okay, it sounds cool. This is Kenneth Lekovara at TED Vancouver in 2016 with his talk, Hunting for Dinosaurs Showed Me Our Place in the Universe. (laughs) Yep, let's go hunting dinosaurs. How do you find a dinosaur? Sounds impossible, doesn't it? It's not. And the answer relies on a formula that all paleontologists use. And I'm going to tell you the secret. First, find rocks of the right age. Second, those rocks must be sedimentary rocks. And third, layers of those rocks must be naturally exposed. That's it. Find those three things and get yourself on the ground. Chances are good that you will find fossils. So there it is, folks. There's how to go hunting for dinosaurs. Those three steps we'll see you next week. (laughs) (laughs) What an interesting opening, though. I really liked how we did that. Again, a classic opening that we've talked about. You start with a question. How do you find a dinosaur? Which is not a question I think most people have... I mean, I have asked myself that question, but... It's certainly an interesting question to it ask. Is. Because obviously, we have found dinosaurs. How do people do that? I've never thought about the question before that. But then as soon as he said it, I was like, oh, yeah. It was a question that I do actually want answered. And then he's outlined exactly what those three steps are. And we often say, if you can't explain it super simply, you don't understand it enough. And I think the fact that he has distilled it down to three very simple sounding steps means that We're listening to the right guy on this topic. He understands it. And if I can make a prediction now, we're going to hear a talk which goes into a little bit more of the depth, the detail around what those steps are, guessing some stories, but we know exactly what it is we're about to talk about. I feel like the three steps might be the three pillars of his talk now. Oh, the three like key points. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. Chances are good that you will find fossils. Now let me break down this formula. Organisms exist only during certain geological intervals. So you have to find rocks of the right age, depending on what your interests are. If you want to find trilobites, you have to find the really, really old rocks of the Paleozoic, rocks between a half a billion and a quarter billion years old. Now, if you want to find dinosaurs, don't look in the Paleozoic, you won't find them. They hadn't evolved yet. You have to find the younger rocks of the Mesozoic, and in the case of dinosaurs, between 235 and 66 million years ago. Now, it's fairly easy to find rocks of the right age at this point because the Earth is, to a coarse degree, geologically mapped. 
This is hard-won information. The annals of Earth history are written in rocks, one chapter upon the next, such that the oldest pages are on bottom, and the youngest on top. Now, were it quite that easy, geologists would rejoice. It's not. The Library of Earth is an old one and has no librarian to impose order. I just want to stop here at that beautiful phrase that he just used, the Library of Earth, because he's talking about the pages being kind of stacked on top of each other. Oh, I, I just liked it. Nice metaphor. Yeah. The Library of Earth is an old one and has no librarian to impose order. Operating over vast swaths of time, myriad geological processes offer every possible insult to the rocks of ages. Most pages are destroyed soon after being written. Some pages are overwritten, creating difficult-to-decipher palimpsests of long-gone landscapes. Pages that do find sanctuary under the advancing sands of time are never truly safe. Unlike the moon, our dead rocky companion, the Earth is alive, pulsing with creative and destructive forces that power its geological metabolism. Lunar rocks brought back by the Apollo astronauts all date back to about the age of the solar system. Moon rocks are forever. Earth rocks, on the other hand, face the perils of a living lithosphere. All will suffer ruination through some combination of mutilation, compression, folding, tearing, scorching, and baking. Thus, the volumes of Earth history are incomplete. He's continued with this metaphor, and I just love it. It is making these really new concepts so easy to follow. Like it's putting it into a language that I understand and I can go along with. You know what I'm hearing here? And that is mm. a super well-crafted script. Like it is nearly poetic in the amount of imagery, metaphor, colorful language that he is, is. using. And it is also fantastically rehearsed and internalized. He's not... I don't get the sense that he's like reading uh, a mental script here. He's just telling us what he has rehearsed and practiced a lot. It is seamless and the language is beautiful. This is really nice to listen to. Do you know what I'm do you know what I'm do you know the feeling that I'm getting and it's from watching him as well is a guy that just loves his topic. Like there is a lot of oh. love and passion and effort and energy and an entire lifetime gone into that. That's like what I'm feeling. It's so much more than just interest. You're right. It's love and a passion, isn't it? He likes his rocks, does Kenneth? <laughs> Thus, the volumes of Earth history are incomplete and disheveled. The library, library is vast and magnificent, but decrepit. And it was this tattered complexity in the rock record that obscured its meaning until relatively recently. Nature provided no card catalog for geologists. This would have to be invented. 5,000 years after the Sumerians learned to record their thoughts on clay tablets, the Earth's volumes remained inscrutable to humans. We were geologically illiterate. Okay, I know I'm interrupting quite quickly here, but I just want to make a note of his PowerPoint that is going on behind him. There's some really interesting techniques being used here. I highly recommend going and looking at the imagery that's used here because you've got some beautiful landscapes. But the way that it's actually been used on the PowerPoint, did you... I mean, of course you noticed that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I see it as a nice little background. So what he's showing is 
geological landscape. So we've got pictures of, I mean, there was one there that looked like the Grand Canyon. There was one of like an interesting sort of rock layers that have been folded up. It was not pertinent to his talk, but certainly gives background. It gives a visual sort of backdrop. Yeah, image backdrop. Yeah, to like, he's talking about geology. He's going to show sort of what almost feels like just stock imagery of geology. Rocks. (laughs) (laughs) But they're not static images. I don't know if you've noticed. But nearly all of them have a very gentle animation, like they're very gently scrolling or panning across, like um, uh, in PowerPoint, it's a motion path, but it's really slow. It's really subtle. And I imagine if you were sitting in a theater watching this, that is just a really nice backdrop, just a little bit of extra visual interest that is in no way distracting from his talk. And the other thing that I noticed, it's got the scroll, but then it's also got a fade out, a really slow fade out. So it goes from being this huge, beautiful landscape behind him that takes up most of the backdrop of the stage. And then it very slowly fades out to black. So normally we see a like a over one or two seconds, but this is over like 20 seconds. It fades to the black. Just a different technique that I've not really seen much before. No, it's quite cinemagraphic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the word. Hmm. We were geologically illiterate, unaware of the antiquity of our own planet, and ignorant of our connection to deep time. It wasn't until the turn of the 19th century that our blinders were removed, first with the publication of James Hutton's Theory of the Earth, in which he told us that the Earth reveals no vestige of a beginning and no prospect of an end. And then with the printing of William Smith's Map of Britain, the first country-scale geological map, giving us for the first time predictive insight into where certain types of rocks might occur. After that, you could say things like, if we go over there, we should be in the Jurassic. Or if we go up over that hill, we should find the Cretaceous. So now, if you want to find trilobites, get yourself a good geological map and go to the rocks of the Paleozoic. If you want to find dinosaurs like I do, find the rocks of the Mesozoic and go there. Now, of course, you can only make a fossil in a sedimentary rock, a rock made by sand and mud. I've got to talk about the PowerPoint again. I'm still loving it. Um, We talked about the map. There was a very uh, useful picture of a map. It was sort of color-coded and talked about where you would find those two things. All of these slides up to this point, though, have had the words, find rocks of the right age on them. So, I mean, they're just sort of in a corner somewhere. It's not taking up... Um, real estate? Yeah, it's not taking up anything sort of value, any valuable real estate, but it's reminding us which of those three points we're on. So we know that rocks of the right age was the first one. He's just said, huh. you have to find sedimentary type rocks. We've got a picture of some rocks and a trail. It's, it's on topic, I guess. Um, just with the word sedimentary rocks. So again, just still using that PowerPoint, no way as a distraction, but as a reminder about what's going on. You can only make a fossil in a sedimentary rock, a rock made by sand and mud. You can't have a fossil in an igneous rock formed by magma like a granite, or in a metamorphic rock that's been heated and squeezed. And you have to get yourself in a desert. It's not that dinosaurs particularly lived in deserts. They lived on every landmass and in every imaginable environment. It's that you need to go to a place that's a desert today, a place that doesn't have too many plants covering up the rocks, and a place where erosion is always exposing new bones at the surface. So find those three things. Rocks of the right age, they're sedimentary rocks, in a desert, 
and get yourself on the ground, and you literally walk until you see a bone sticking out of the rock. So here's a picture that I took in southern Patagonia, and every pebble that you see on the ground there is a piece of dinosaur bone. So when you're in that right situation, it's not a question of whether you're going to find fossils or not. You're going to find fossils. The question is, will you find something that is scientifically significant? And to help with that, I'm going to add a fourth part to our formula, which is this: get as far away from other paleontologists as possible. <laughs> it's not that I don't like other paleontologists. Let's just touch on that use of humor, which is. One, stay in your lane. He's a paleontologist. He's taking a bit of a stab at paleontologists. You know, it's、uh, you can throw rocks at your own glasshouse. How does that work? Anyway, stay in your lane. Like we can make jokes about your own ownership. And the other thing was that he said that fourth requirement is, and he could have said that in a, in a bunch of different ways about you need to explore places that other people haven't explored. Not particularly funny or entertaining, but by saying get as far away as possible from other paleontologists. So a little bit light, just a little bit of humor in there.、Mm. Um, just that's how it's done. That's how you add a little tiny piece of humor into a talk.、Yeah. It's not that I don't like other paleontologists. When you go to a place that's relatively unexplored, you have a much better chance of not only finding fossils but of finding something that's new to science. So that's my formula for finding dinosaurs, and I've applied it all around the world. In the austral summer of 2004, I went to the bottom of South America, to the bottom of Patagonia, Argentina. To prospect for dinosaurs, a place that had terrestrial sedimentary rocks of the right age, in a desert, a place that had been barely visited by paleontologists, and we found this. This is a femur, a thigh bone, of a giant plant-eating dinosaur. That bone is 2.2 meters across. That's over seven feet long. Now, unfortunately, that bone was isolated. We dug and dug and dug. And there wasn't another bone around, but it made us hungry to go back the next year for more. And on the first day of that next field season, I found this: another two-meter femur. Only this time, not isolated. This time, associated with 145 other bones of a giant plant-eater. And after three more hard, really brutal field seasons, the quarry came to look like this. And there you see the tail of that great beast wrapping around me. And the giant that lay in this grave, the new species of dinosaur, we would eventually call Dreadnoughtus shrani. Dreadnoughtus was 85 feet from snout to tail. It stood two and a half stories at the shoulder, and all fleshed out in life, it weighed 65 tons. People ask me sometimes, was Dreadnoughtus bigger than a T-Rex? That's the mass of eight or nine T-Rex. Now, one of the really cool things about being a paleontologist is when you find a new species, you get to name it. And I've always thought it a shame that these giant plant-eating dinosaurs are too often portrayed as passive, lumbering platters of meat on the landscape. <laughs> They're not. Big herbivores can be surly and they can be territorial. You do not want to mess with a hippo or a rhino or a water buffalo. The bison in Yellowstone injure far more people than do the grizzly bears. I feel like this is just interesting. We're talking about like this new dinosaur. It's clearly big. I think dinosaurs kind of speak to this childish fascination that we all have. It's just this is an interesting talk. There's a guy who's got the photos, been there, done it, and just now we're looking at a shot of the audience, and they're interested. 
Like there is, there is gestures and facial expressions here. People are very clearly listening fully to what Kenneth is saying. Yeah, for sure. This is fun. I'm loving this. Dude, it's about dinosaurs. Of course it was going to be fun. Yeah. <laughs> the bison in Yellowstone injure far more people than do the grizzly bears. So can you imagine a big bull, 65-ton dreadnoughtus in the breeding season? Defending a territory, that animal would have been incredibly dangerous, a menace to all around, and itself would have had nothing to fear. And thus the name Dreadnoughtus, or fears nothing. Now to grow so large, an animal like Dreadnoughtus would have had to have been a model of efficiency. That long neck and long tail help it radiate heat into the environment, passively controlling its temperature. And that long neck also serves as a super-efficient feeding mechanism. Dreadnoughtus could stand in one place and, with that neck, clear out a huge envelope of vegetation, taking in tens of thousands of calories while expending very few. And these animals evolved a bulldog-like, wide-gauge stance, giving them immense stability. Because when you're 65 tons, when you're literally as big as a house, the penalty for falling over is death. Yeah, these animals are big and tough, but they're not going to take a blow like that. And Dreadnoughtus falls over, ribs break and pierce lungs, organs burst. If you're a big 65-ton Dreadnoughtus, you don't get to fall down in life even once. Now, after this particular Dreadnoughtus carcass was buried and defleshed by a multitude of bacteria, worms and insects, its bones underwent a brief metamorphosis, exchanging molecules with the groundwater and becoming more and more like the entombing rock. As layer upon layer of sediment accumulated, pressure from all sides weighed in like a stony glove whose firm and enduring grip held each bone in a stabilizing embrace. And then came the long nothing. Epoch after epoch of sameness, non-events without number. Uh, something I'm just noticing here, <laughs> like you said, epochs of sameness. Uh, he's gotten stuck into a little bit of a repetitive speaking pattern. Bum, 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 He's sort of, there are these segments that are spoken at the same rate, the same pitch, sort of about sentence or half a sentence, and then a pause, and then the same thing over and over again. I'm not going to say it's monotonous, but it is a repetitive pattern. And it's just gone on for like the last minute, two minutes, something. Enough that I've noticed, um, you know, I hope we get a little bit of vocal variety, a little bit of change of pace in here. Um, it's, like, it's just been as we've been listing. Um... Yeah, I quite like it. To me, it like, kind of encapsulates the story. It kind of puts a beginning and an end to this story. And I quite like that it's one repetitive pattern. It just kind of segments it, I guess. Makes it audibly different to the rest of the talk. You yeah, mean? yeah. Yeah, okay. Let's see how it goes. Epoch after epoch of sameness, non-events without number. All the while, the skeleton lay everlasting and unchanging in perfect equilibrium within its rocky grave. Meanwhile, Earth history unfolded above. The dinosaurs would reign for another 12 million years before their hegemony was snuffed out in a fiery apocalypse. The continents drifted, the mammals rose, the Ice Age came, and then in East Africa, an unpromising species of ape evolved the odd trick of sentient thought. These brainy primates were not particularly fast or strong, 
but they excelled at covering ground. And in a remarkable diaspora, surpassing even the dinosaurs' record of territorial conquest, they dispersed across the planet, ravishing every ecosystem they encountered. And along the way, inventing culture and metalworking and painting and dance and music, and science, and rocket ships that would eventually take 12 particularly excellent apes to the surface of the moon. With seven billion peripatetic Homo sapiens on the planet, it was perhaps inevitable that one of them would eventually trod on the grave of the magnificent Titan buried beneath the badlands of southern Patagonia. I was that ape, and standing there, alone in the desert, it was not lost on me that the chance of any one individual entering the fossil record is vanishingly small. But the Earth is very, very old. And over vast tracts of time, the improbable becomes the probable. That's the magic of the geological record. Thus, multitudinous creatures living and dying on an old planet leave behind immense numbers of fossils, each one a small miracle, but collectively inevitable. 66 million years ago, an asteroid hits the Earth and wipes out the dinosaurs. This easily might not have been. But we only get one history, and it's the one that we have. But this particular reality was not inevitable. The tiniest perturbation of that asteroid, far from Earth, would have caused it to miss our planet by a wide margin. The pivotal calamitous day during which the dinosaurs were wiped out, setting the stage for the modern world as we know it. All right, let's talk about this vocal pace again. Now he's introduced a whole bunch of what we call the sudden stop, which is I've got a list of information. It's going to get more and more intense and build in intensity, and then. There's a sudden stop there. Build, 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 build. Pause. You know, we're having all of these events like the evolution of man,、uh, putting people on the moon.、Uh, there was the the asteroid, the fossils. All of those things have been a little tiny sudden stop, which builds intensity and places emphasis on each of those points by increasing the intensity of the pace, the pitch, you know, the, the delivery overall. And then that sudden pause. It's called the sudden stop. And why do you do it? I thought I said that to build the contrast and the importance of each of those points. So a sudden stop really emphasises、gotcha. um, something that builds up in intensity, and then we pause for a moment. But we've had he's just been introducing a whole lot of small ones about each of those little points I mentioned just in this last again minute or so. The pivotal calamitous day during which the dinosaurs were wiped out, setting the stage for the modern world as we know it, didn't have to be. It could have just been another day, a Thursday perhaps. Among the 63 billion days already enjoyed by the dinosaurs, but over geological time, improbable, nearly impossible events do occur along the path from our wormy Cambrian ancestors to primates dressed in suits. Innumerable forks in the road led us to this very particular reality. The bones of Dreadnoughtus lay underground for 77 million years. Who could have imagined that a single species? Of shrew-like mammal living in the cracks of the dinosaur world would evolve into sentient beings capable of characterizing and understanding the very dinosaurs they must have dreaded. I once stood at the head of the Missouri River and bestraddled it. There, it's nothing more than a gurgle of water that issues forth from beneath a rock, in a boulder, in a pasture, high in the Bitterroot Mountains. The stream next to it runs a few hundred yards, and ends in a small pond. Those two streams, they look identical, 
but one is an anonymous trickle of water, and the other is the Missouri River. Now go down to the mouth of the Missouri near St. Louis, and it's pretty obvious that that river is a big deal. But go up into the Bitterroots and look at the Missouri, and human prospection does not allow us to see it as anything special. Now go back to the Cretaceous period and look at our tiny fuzzball ancestors, and you would never guess that they would amount to anything special, and they probably wouldn't have, were it not for that pesky asteroid. Now make a thousand more worlds and a thousand more solar systems, and let them run. You will never get the same result. No doubt, those worlds would be both amazing and amazingly improbable, but they would not be our world, and they would not have our history. There are an infinite number of histories that we could have had, and we only get one. And wow, did we ever get a good one? Dinosaurs like Dreadnoughtus were real. Sea monsters like the Mosasaur were real. Dragonflies with a wingspan of an eagle and pillbugs the length of a car really existed. Why study the ancient past? Because it gives us perspective and humility. The dinosaurs died in the world's fifth mass extinction, snuffed out in a cosmic accident through no fault of their own. They didn't see it coming, and they didn't have a choice. We. On the other hand, do have a choice, and the nature of the fossil record tells us that our place on this planet is both precarious and potentially fleeting. Right now, our species is propagating an environmental disaster of geological proportions that is so broad and so severe, it can rightly be called the sixth extinction. Only, unlike the dinosaurs, we can see it coming, and unlike the dinosaurs. We can do something about it. That choice is ours. Thank you. Wow. Okay. That end bit, like it's. I thought we were talking about dinosaurs, and then suddenly it's like environmental. Bam. <laughs> yeah, I forgot that bit right on the end. I remember that he talked、uh, about dinosaurs, geology, paleontology, that bit up front, and then it became sort of this. Uh, how it changed his perception of like the unlikeliness of the evolution of the Earth and that sort of thing. I remember those two parts, and it it does get quite deep intellectual thought there, sort of in that second half around the maths and science of evolution, and、uh, it's it's an interesting angle to take the story about digging up a dinosaur in, and you know I think. It's probably really easy to go and dig up that dinosaur, the Dreadnoughtus, and tell that story and leave it at that. But the the fact that he's pulled something very different and much bigger out of it, I really like. I think it's a a talk worthy of thought.、Mm, it's good though, isn't it? It's just good. Yeah, I really liked it. What was the、uh, what was the one message you got out of it, Kate? I think I was really struggling for it because I was kind of thinking about that the whole way through,、mm. and I think it came in on in those last twenty seconds of. We have a choice about the future of our species. Yeah, that idea that we can see it coming and we can do something about it. Like you said,、mm. it was, what what's the message of this talk if you remove those last twenty seconds? Then dinosaurs are cool. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know. I I honestly don't know. Because to me, to me, in many ways, I feel like that last twenty seconds was a. I don't want to say a bolt on it. Clearly flowed into that. But I think if you remove that, the talk about discovering dinosaurs, our place in the universe, all of that. Is a standalone talk as well.、Uh, I don't know. I disagree. I think he started with that last message. I don't think that that was an add-on. 
I know you don't like those words, but I don't think that that was a separate part at all. I think that was absolutely imperative to it. I think if you didn't start with that, then it would have been a very different beginning and middle. Uh, what do you mean start with it? Like start the talk? Uh, if you didn't start with that as your main message before you started writing content. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, you're right. I can totally see that. All right. So what did we see? We've talked a lot about the visuals behind him, but what about him as a presenter? I think the visuals behind him were really the main visual element of this this presentation. There was, again, just more of those sort of scrolling, contextual images in the background. Highly recommend you go and watch this. It's <laughs> beautiful imagery. His presentation, I think, was, in a very good way, unremarkable. Which yeah. is, he basically stood on the red dot and presented. He moved around a little bit, like he looked comfortable, casual... Um, he wasn't doing anything too crazy that I saw. There was a couple of like demonstrations where he talked about straddling the stream. There was that, but really he just sort of stood there comfortably and gave his talk. There wasn't really any gestures particularly. His facial expressions though were quite good. I found, again, I said this throughout as well. He looks passionate. He looks like he is enjoying this talk. He looks like he enjoys this subject. He looks happy to be there. The only other thing I did notice is he is dressed entirely in black. Like he's got a black suit jacket, black pants, mm. black shoes, black shirt, which I think takes some of the focus away from him and again onto those sort of striking background contextual images. I think there's been a decision made there to look a little bit subdued, to look a little bit black and sort of blend into that background a little bit to give a little bit more focus to the imagery. Yeah, the only problem is when the screen behind was completely black, he did become a bit of a talking head, mm. but not in a distracting way particularly. I mean, I feel like that's super nitpicky. Yeah, I, I would be very surprised if that, that conversation wasn't had about what to wear and they've mm. gone, we've got these great images that we've put effort into. What if you're entirely in black? And yeah, the, the focus is put onto those images to help tell the story. Yeah. So I guess overall thoughts, Kate? I loved it. I loved it. Did you love it because of the dinosaurs or because it's a good talk? Both. Both. I think, like you said, there's a childlike kind of wonder with dinosaurs. Every kid likes dinosaurs. And then that really solid message at the end, I just found it just fun to listen to, interesting and really poignant. Yeah, like I said, I think it's very thought-provoking. I feel like this is the type of talk you could go back and watch again and probably hear something slightly different in it to to get you thinking. Um. Yeah, I think this is a bit of a masterclass in like how you can use imagery that's not distracting, that just adds context and helps deliver your presentation. Hmm. So that was Kenneth Lacavara, Hunting for Dinosaurs, showed me our place in the universe. There is a link down below where you can go and watch this talk, and I recommend you do. Go and invest 15 minutes and watch this uh, excellent talk and see what we've been seeing as well. If you're new to the show, we do one of these speech breakdowns every third episode. Feel free to go and listen to some more if you love them. And we will be back in your ears next week with another interview with a speaking expert. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to today's show. Head to presentationboss.com.au slash podcast where you'll find the show notes for this episode, all other episodes and other free resources. If you've seen a speech you'd like us to break down on the show, Flick us the link at podcast at presentationboss.com.au. Most importantly, we rely on you to share the information in this podcast. If you found value in today's episode, please recommend us to a friend. Or we'd love for you to give us a review on iTunes. It helps more people find us. Have a great week.
out in life, it weighed 65 tons. Wow! People ask me sometimes, was Dreadnoughtus bigger than a T-Rex? That's the massive eight or nine T-Rex. What? 